Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke. And this is the story of the boyhood Jesus, the, the boy Jesus, which is one of a kind in all the Gospels. Starting in verse 39, I'm sorry, in verse, yeah, in verse 39. Um, and when he had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, or they, that is the parents, um, Mary and Joseph, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The word of the Lord. Lord, as we reflect on this story in your life, in the life of your son, we ask that you instruct our hearts and help us to, to, to learn and to be awed by the greatness of the incarnation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a story about the God who became a boy. It's an unusual course of development. Um, you might expect something more along, along the lines like the boy who became a god. Um, but, but that's not how it goes. It's about the god who became a boy. Um, and in this story, what we get is we have a glimpse of the 12-year-old Jesus as a boy. And not surprisingly, he was uh, a very precocious child. He uh, impressed all the teachers, the scribes and and uh, the teachers in the temple with his wisdom and his learning. Um, and also not surprising, at least uh, for those of you who know something about 12-year-old boys, is that he gets in trouble with his parents. This story has a bit of a feel of kind of like home alone, but in reverse, right? So the family is packing up to return from their their family vacation or time away in Jerusalem, and they're, they're busy, and there's all kinds of hustle and bustle, and they leave, and they leave and end up leaving Jesus behind, right? And they don't discover that he's missing until like a day into their journey. But instead of Jesus having fallen asleep somewhere on a haystack, you know, in the corner of the temple, it's not, it's not their fault, right? Jesus intentionally makes a decision to stay behind at the temple. Now you might be wondering, 
What's the purpose of this story? Why is this story given to us? Again, it's the only of its kind. It's the only story of its kind in the, in, in the four Gospels. Um, but within Hebrew, within the Hebrew Bible and also Greco-Roman literature of the time, um, there, there, this is a, it's common to have stories of really important figures in their youth when they were children. And um, think of the stories of Moses or Samuel, which was our sacred reading. Um, the roles that these stories play is to illustrate what makes these, these children or these, these figures so important later on. It gives us a picture of their character. It gives us a picture, too, of how God sets them apart and, and foreshadows their mission. And that's very much what's going on here in the Gospel of Luke in, in the sharing of this story. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that the boy Jesus was a remarkable child. Um, he is a remarkable human being. However, despite his clear devotion and his impressive learning and interaction, there's nothing about this story that would necessarily um, betray Jesus' divine identity as the Son of the Most High. Uh, one can imagine um, many other 12-year-old boys or girls um, being very precocious and learned and devout in the way that Jesus is. It's not as if what Jesus does here is so utterly unique that no other boy or girl could ever do what he did. Now, I say that because I, it's, to appreciate this story in, in the Gospel of Luke, it's really helpful to see it alongside some other stories of Jesus um, that we have recorded for us in what are called the uh, apocryphal Gospels or Gnostic Gospels, which were written 150, 100 to 150 years after the original Gospels. Um, it, actually, the boy Jesus was a, was a point of fascination in a lot of Gnostic literature. And so I want to share with you a couple of those stories just to help you see how differently um, the canonical Gospels or Luke treats the person in, of Jesus. There's... There's a, there's a text called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. I'm just going to read you a couple lines from this. This is about the boy Jesus. This little child Jesus, when he was five years old, was playing at a ford, which is like a river, of a brook. And he gathered together the waters that flowed there into pools, and he made them straightaway clean and commanded them by his word alone. And having made soft clay... He fashioned thereof twelve sparrows. And it was the Sabbath when he did these things, and there were also many other little children playing with him. So here you have this picture of the boy Jesus. Um, there's a river that's coming, and he diverts the river, and he makes a bunch of pools. But not only that, he cleans the pools, right? <laughs> and then he has clay, and he makes, uh, he, he makes um, pigeons out of the clay, right? So you just imagine, like, he's almighty God and powerful, and he's, he's doing these things. In the, same, uh, in the same text, there's another story of a, a little boy running through town, and the little boy bumps into the boy Jesus, and the boy Jesus gets very upset, and he curses the other little boy, and that boy falls down dead. And then the parents of the slain little boy who are upset, they come to Joseph, right, Jesus' father, 
And they tell him, your son killed our son, right? So then Joseph, you know, goes to Jesus and tries to reprimand him to, you know, rectify the situation, resurrect this little boy. The boy Jesus gets upset, even more upset, refuses to resurrect the little boy that he cursed, and then curses the parents with blindness, right? So this is what happens when an adolescent has godlike powers, right? You know, it's a very terrifying thought. These are, I mean, this is just a couple stories. There's a whole lot of stories that are like this that you find in these Gnostic Gospels. Um, and when you, you read those stories alongside um, the Gospel of Luke, it's really quite remarkable. Because, um, you know, Luke's account of Jesus is, is I mean, he's just, he's just a, he's unremarkable compared to these other things, right? He is remarkable by human standards. He is special, but he doesn't seem unhuman. Like when you read that story, you wouldn't say, oh yeah, that is God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who commands the seas and can do, I mean, he could have done what the boy, the little boy in the Gnostic Gospels does, I suppose. See, the boy Jesus in the Gnostic Gospels doesn't really feel like an authentic little boy, right? Um, He's a God in a little boy body, but not really acting much like a little boy, aside from being short-tempered and uh, wanting to impress his friends with all his powers, right? That's very little boy-like. But um, the Jesus of the Gospels doesn't perform any miracles as a child, not that we know of. And he doesn't revel in his divine power, wielding it like a magic wand. He's just a normal enough boy that it's possible for him to actually be momentarily lost by his family, right? He's lost, uh, which means he wasn't always the center of attention. You can imagine a great family gathering, and the parents are probably saying, well, he's probably with his cousin somewhere. We haven't seen him, right? He's a normal enough little boy that he gets in trouble with his parents and is reprimanded by his mother for wandering off without telling them. He's a normal enough little boy that, you know, he has a tense conversation explaining himself to his parents, but afterwards submits and obeys them. He's a normal enough little boy that, like other children, he has to grow and mature in wisdom with God and with other human beings. And perhaps I think the most remarkable thing about Luke's story is just how normal it seems, given what we know about his divine identity as a child. The boy Jesus is believably human boy, right? This is a really important story to understand the church's, what the church means by the incarnation. Um, the incarnation means God Almighty becomes flesh, right? You remember what John says, which I read earlier. Well, actually, I didn't read it earlier, but, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the question The really difficult question for the church and for our minds and imaginations is, how does God become human without changing the meaning of what it means to be human? Or God becoming less than fully God, right? How do you do that? How does that work? How does does God become human without completely changing the meaning of humanity or becoming less than fully divine? And that's the mystery of the incarnation. That is what the church fought so hard in the early parts to articulate clearly through the creeds the nature of Jesus having two natures in one person. Jesus is um, fully human, 
and fully divine. Let me just read a couple lines from the Athanasian Creed, which comes from, I think, the seventh century. It says, we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, or in the words of the Nicene Creed, of the same substance as the Father. Begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father as regards his divinity, less than the Father as regards his humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. This is the mystery of the incarnation. And what I think often goes unappreciated by us, especially as we understand the nature of salvation in our own age, is how Jesus' humanity, his full humanity, is absolutely central to our salvation. We think, what is saving about Jesus? Well, it's that he was God, and yes, but it's also that he was fully human. The writer of the Hebrews uh, says, this is therefore he, that is Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. Jesus had to become like us in every way without exception. And that the problem with the Gnostic versions of Jesus from the second century on up into the present is that um, they, at the end of the day, deny the real humanity of Jesus. Jesus just seems human. He's not fully and truly human. His human nature is like a coat or, or like, a, like a skin that he just he puts over his divine person, but when he's done with what he needs to do, he just throws it off and goes back to being fully divine. That is not the Christian understanding of the person of Jesus. Jesus, in his ascended state, is Jesus of Nazareth. He has a body still to this day, and he will never cast that body off. He will never cast his humanity off, which means he will never cast us off. The Orthodox tradition of the church has always understand, understood that a full affirmation of Jesus' humanity was just as important as a full affirmation of his divinity. In the wise and wonderful words of one of the early church fathers, Gregory of Nazianzus, as he's resisting these Gnostic understandings of Jesus' person, he says this, he says, that which Jesus did not assume is not healed. In other words, if Jesus didn't assume, say, a soul, then the human soul is not saved. <laughs> Anything that is going to be saved or redeemed, he had to assume into his humanity. So again, what's so remarkable about this story is we see this picture of the boy Jesus. Um, he's a real little boy growing up and maturing like other little boys. And yet at the same time, we're already beginning to, glimpse, to get a glimpse of his divine identity and his mission as the Son of the Most High. So one of the, the themes that you, you probably picked up and hearing this story read is that Luke is very interested in just pointing out Jesus' growth and development as, as a person. And there's two, two references to it. 
that bookend um, both bookend the story. Um, in verse 40, it says, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a, a reference that really captures um, about the 12 years of Jesus' life from the point in which he was, he was um, circumcised in the temple and this scene that we have in here right now, right? So all that time, you know, Jesus is, he's growing, he's becoming strong, he's being filled with wisdom, both in his relationship to human beings and also in his relationship to God. But then when we get to the end of this story, Luke makes a, a very similar observation about Jesus' development, and he says, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. So this story assumes that Mary and Joseph have our faithful parents. They bring them to the synagogue. We know this. Yearly bring them to the Passover in, in the temple. They've taught him the Torah. They, they're very devout parents. But what's striking here um, is the observation that Jesus grows up within this context that Mary and Joseph have sort of provided for him. He grows up in the presence of the Lord. And this is where our story kind of calls us back our minds to, to our sacred reading, which is the story of Samuel, right? Samuel is this boy who's growing up in the tabernacle, and he's growing up in the presence of the Lord. And it's the same with Jesus. He's growing up in the presence of the Lord. Um, someday, perhaps, I'll preach a baptismal sermon on this and what it means for parenting. But I want us to stay focused on Jesus this morning. Um, so when his parents finally find Jesus... They're astonished. And the question is, why are they astonished? Are they astonished that, um, that they, f they found him in Jerusalem in the temple? Or are they astonished at like, all the great things, like he was wowing the teachers um, with his wisdom and learning? Um, I think it's the former. I think they're astonished, like, are you joking? Are you kidding? Like, sort of like as a parent, you're like, you didn't tell us? They're astonished in that way. And their astonishment quickly gives way to frustration. Um, and it says, his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, Mary and Joseph are, are clearly hurt by Jesus' actions. And they, they seem to be greatly worried. They were very worried. Um, this is a very human scene. Um, if you're a parent, um, I mean, it's, it's easy to laugh at this and see the, the amusement of it after the fact, but it, as a parent, if you've ever had a child go missing or misplaced a child inadvertently, um, even for a brief period of time, there's nothing that strikes more fear into your heart as a parent, to not know where your child is. And I think that's precisely what Mary and Joseph were feeling, They're like, where did he go? So I think their frustration, Mary's frustration at Jesus is very understandable and very reasonable. And Jesus' response is equally uh, remarkable, right? Um, and he said to them, why were you looking for me? <laughs> Which is like, well, were your parents, right? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now there seems to be an assumption on Jesus' part here that Mary and Joseph should have known where he was at. Um, they should have assumed that he would have been in the temple if they really thought about who he was as their son, what they learned about him. 
Um, now there is a subtle play on words here in Jesus' response or in how Luke tells the story because Mary says to Jesus, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus says to them, did you not know I must be in my father's house? And so what we have here in view are two fathers. Jesus' uh, earthly father, not biological, but earthly, adopted father, if you will, Joseph, his human father, but then also his heavenly father, God. And Jesus is saying, you should have known that I would have been where my heavenly father would have me to be. And Jesus' response to Mary suggests that Joseph and Mary have forgotten something about his divine identity. Don't you remember, Mary, 13 years ago, <laughs> when the angel Gabriel came to you, what, before I was conceived in your womb, he said, of me, he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the Son of the Most High. So it shouldn't be any surprise, at least in Jesus' thinking, that he is in his father's house, attending to his father's business, right? Jesus was a regular little boy, just like other little boys, carried on, needing to be cared for. And probably because of this, it was easy for Mary and Joseph to, to relate to him merely as a little boy and forget about his divine identity. He is the son of Mary. He is the son of Joseph as a human father. However, he is also the son of the Most High. And God is his true father by nature, to whom his ultimate devotion and obedience demands. So this is something of a mysterious and mystifying exchange between Jesus and his parents. Because the question is, well, who is right and who's wrong here? Were Mary and Joseph right to be upset that Jesus seemed to wander off without saying anything? I think so. <laughs> I think so. I, I think they... As normal human parents, they were absolutely within their rights to feel the way they did. But does that mean that Jesus was disobedient and even sinful? No. Disobedient, perhaps. Sinful, no. See, again, I think this is where, this is where we begin to see the, the tension between Jesus' human identity and his divine identity right here at this point. And it requires that framework to make sense of it. There is a prophetic word that is spoken to Mary in the temple by a righteous man named Simeon. When Jesus was just a boy of eight days old and they bring him in to be circumcised, an old man named Simeon comes to Mary and he says to her, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, so that, many, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he says to Mary, in kind of parentheses almost, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. 
And I think what's happening in this moment here is what Mary is doing is she's beginning to taste um, the tip of the sword piercing her soul. Even though Mary and Joseph are Jesus' parents, even though they must protect him and feed him and care for him and nurture him, they are yet sinners and he is not. Mary is Jesus' mother, but Jesus is her Lord and her Savior. And in this moment, <clears throat> in this moment where Mary, um, Mary gets a little bit of a glimpse of that sword and that reality. Now the thing that um, stands out most about Jesus in this story in relationship to his his divine identity, is his devotion to the Father. Jesus has a special devotion to the Father. And um, it's unusual even that he would call God Father, because um, Father was not a usual title in which a first century Jew would refer to God. When you read the Old Testament, you will find very few references to God as Father. To call God Father presumes a great deal. And God, of course, in the, in the Jewish tradition, the Hebrew tradition, Yahweh is the God's revealed name. And God's, and, and God's name is holy and it's set apart. To reveal, to talk of God as Father presumes a kind of intimacy and relationship um, that is far too familiar for your first century Jew. But if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus and the way he talked about God, is he, he consistently, in his preferred term to talk about God, was as Father. God is Father, and he does this not just for our sake, to, to kind of say, listen, I'm, I'm trying to, to rebrand a little bit and try to make God more approachable. He says God is Father. Why? Because by nature, God is his Father. By nature, God is his Father, so it makes sense that he would call him Father. Again, what the Creed said about Jesus, he is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. And so Jesus calls God his Father because he is the Son of the Most High. And what's surprising about the Gospel's presentation of Jesus' divine identity, or his deity, if you will, is that they tend not to focus, the Gospels tend not to focus Jesus' divine identity on these great miraculous things that he does. Like miracles, he does those things, and those things certainly attest to his divinity, but you have prophets in the Old Testament, like Elijah, who do great things, even raising the dead. When the Gospels draw our attention to Jesus' divine identity and want us to think about this is more than just a normal human, they draw attention in a special way to his relationship with the Father. His special relationship with the Father. Um, in the Gospel of John, one of the disciples, Philip, asked Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father. <laughs> and Jesus' retort really captures the whole of his ministry. He says this, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, he, Jesus, he is the Son of the Most High. He is God in his own right, but he does not want to be known in his divine identity without making the Father known. And later on in Luke, Jesus will say, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. 
and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a lot here to meditate on. When you think about the divinity of Jesus, you think about his identity as the Son of the Most High. Don't think about it in the abstract the way the Gnostic Gospels do as like some figure with all the power in the world. He can do whatever he wants. Think about it in terms of he makes the Father known to us. He, he reveals the Father to us. And that brings us full circle back to the, the whole purpose of the Incarnation. Why did God become flesh? Why did the Son of the Most High become flesh? And I think our answer you find in the Gospel of Luke is really captured in the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. Why does God become flesh? To return us, reunite us, prodigal sons and daughters, with the Father. To bring us back into his household. To reveal to us a Father who is compassionate and merciful in his heart. Who desires to have his children in his household. This is the Father who sees us in our our misery and sees us a long ways off, right? And feels compassion. Who sees that even when we step one foot over the threshold or onto, you know, in his direction, he runs towards us and embraces us with a kiss. This is the same Father that even though we have sinned against him and we are not worthy to be called his sons or his daughters, he puts on his best robe on us and a ring and shoes and he brings us into the house and he slaughters the fattened calf and he has a great celebration because his son, his daughter has returned into his household. This is the father that Jesus reveals. This, these were the arrangements. This was the planning that happened when Jesus diverted from Jerusalem, or diverted to the temple, away from his parents, to plan this great reunion and future celebration in the Father's household. Amen. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks that you sent your Son, and his mission was to bring your children back into the household wandering and aimless sons and daughters. Lord, your heart for us uh, breaks and you desire for us to be with you in your presence. We thank you for sending your son and we thank you for the gift that he is in our lives. And um, Lord, in this season, may we reunite with you as your children in your household. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.